T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Among Illinois' upcoming congressional elections, the battle for the 14th district will be one of the most closely watched. Two years ago, riding the blue wave, Democrat Lauren Underwood took a traditionally Republican seat away from incumbent Randy Hultgren to become at 32 the youngest African-American woman ever to serve in Congress. Now she's trying to keep that seat, challenged by a man whose name is literally a household word, but the odds are in her favor this time. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. Naperville Congresswoman Lauren Underwood is my guest this weekend. We electronically sat down with her Republican challenger, State Senator Jim Oberweis, some weeks ago. Yes, he's the dairy owner with the milk deliveries and ice cream shops and lots of money for campaigning. But campaigning this year is not what it used to be. Uh, the 14th District covers suburbs from Crystal Lake and Geneva to Yorkville and Oswego. It reaches as far south as Manuka and north to the Wisconsin border and it was once represented by former House Speaker Dennis Hastert. Well, full disclosure, I live in the 14th, which makes Lauren Underwood my congresswoman, and we are speaking via Zoom conferencing. Welcome back to the program, and thanks for joining me. Well, thanks, Craig. I'm really delighted to be here. Well, you were first elected in a campaign, A, that I covered, and B, it was dominated by the uh, health care issue, and that's the case this year, too, but in ways I don't think anyone expected it to be. Um, you are a nurse with a master's degree in public health, years with the Department of Health and Human Services, and time as an advisor to the Obama administration. Is even that enough training and experience to cope with a global pandemic? Well, I think that my background and experience has certainly equipped me to be able to help our community during this time battling a novel virus. When we have had a health care crisis and an economic crisis that has literally touched all of us, um, and so, you know, when I came into Congress, healthcare affordability was a big focus of mine. Um, but now that we're facing COVID-19, we're doubling down, right? Healthcare is the number one concern that we're hearing from constituents. And so, you know, I'm proud of the progress that we've made in Congress um, to deal with those cost issues, to reduce prescription drug prices and reduce the cost of premiums. But obviously, there's so much more work that we need to do uh, to wrap our arms around this virus and crush it um, in order to be able to help us all uh, move through and recover from the pandemic. Um what is your assessment of where we are right now? I mean, President Trump insists we are turning the corner. Some top White House doctors say we are still in the first wave. What is your view? 
Well, we know that um, we are seeing, continued to see increased number of cases. Um, nationally, we're at over six and a half million people diagnosed with COVID-19. This weekend, we're expecting to hit 200,000 Americans who have died as a result of this virus. Um, throughout the 14th Congressional District, we've seen counties uh, move in and out of that warning level. Um, I live in Will County, and we've seen our reopening rolled back because of increasing rates of COVID-19. And so, and we're just beginning flu season and um, anticipating that, you know, that will have an impact as people um, have you know, more exposure to the virus um, and potentially uh, lower immune vitality <laughs> as they continue to um, battle the flu. And, and so that's why we're encouraging people to get their flu shot, hello. Uh, but also uh, just recognizing that this has been an unpredictable virus. Um, and so, you know, let's not try to placate people with broad overgeneralizations and let's instead focus on the advice from the scientists and the researchers that tell us that we still need to be vigilant with our mask wearing. We still need to have impeccable hand hygiene and we need to stay six feet apart um, in order to give ourselves the best chance of controlling the community spread. And in order to do that, to control it, what needs to happen, um, first off on a local level, but what needs to happen on the national level then? Yes. So um, we were able to secure free COVID testing in one of our earlier relief uh, bills that we passed out of the Congress and that was signed into law. But we are still missing critical proposals like free COVID treatment. As you know, we have been battling high health care costs for a number of years now. And so um, even in, you know, quote, a good economy, we saw people self-tapering their insulin or cutting their pills in half. And so the prospect of spending a week in an intensive care unit or a week on a ventilator with COVID-19, people hear that and they, they see dollar signs and they know that they can't afford it. And so the threat a very costly COVID treatment is preventing people um, from seeking care. We need to handle that. Um, we need to have a national plan for how we're going to move forward. And this Trump administration has been unwilling to take responsibility. I mean, the president literally said it and they've not had a national plan. And as a result, we continue to see shortages of personal protective equipment. We continue to see delays in testing and states running out of resources. And so, you know, Community members are experiencing delays of seven, 10 days until they can get their COVID results back. I mean, that is no way to handle a pandemic. We need to have contact tracing scaled up in all of our communities, not just some. Um, and we need to be able to begin preparing now for the vaccine distribution. This will be the largest mass vaccination campaign in American history. And guess what? The demand for the vaccine will be amplified because everyone around the world is also going to want it. And so in order for this effort to be successful, we need the American people to trust that the vaccine is both safe and effective. And so I've written legislation, the Community Immunity During COVID-19 Act, which would begin to make investments in state and local health departments to do those public education campaigns and, and begin to set up um, um, 
like relationships with trusted community partners so that you can have that cultural congruency, that linguistic congruency, uh, so that people will be willing to take up a vaccine and protect themselves, their families, and our communities. I mean, we need to be doing this work aggressively now. And the denial that we continue to see from the administration, um, the, you know, if we're going to be generous and call it mixed messages, but really their insistence that mask wearing is not something that we need to be doing is only harming the American people. Now, the administration is aggressive on another front, and that is trying to make sure that this vaccine gets to people before Election Day. Uh, and it's almost been stated in that uh, way, but certainly it's the end of October is now the way they're saying it. How concerned are you that the pushing out of this is going to undercut the trust. I mean, and I, I know people who are saying, oh, they're doing this too fast. I'm, I'm not sure I want to take the vaccine. How, how harmful can that be? That's right. So, you know, we've heard those concerns as well, sort of on two fronts. One is the work of the anti-vaxxers who for the last decade or more have been seeking to undermine public trust and confidence in our immunization system and um, convince the American people that, you know, they don't need to be vaccinated against, you know, things like the flu, the measles and what, whatever. Um, then we're also seeing this dynamic play out around the COVID vaccine among people who believe in science, who've immunized their children, who are up to date on their own routine immunization, saying things like they don't want a Trump vaccine. In both scenarios, it's incredibly damaging. And so, you know, I think that uh, Dr. Fauci has been very clear that the president's statements are overly optimistic. They are not grounded in uh, the realities of the phases of vaccine development. We've seen, um, you know, reports from the Food and Drug Administration, which is the agency at the federal level that is charged with reviewing the clinical trial data and um, making those authorizations when something is FDA approved, right? That's what it means that the vaccine would come to market. And, you know, their plans suggest that we may be in for a little bit of a longer term rollout for the American people. Um, and so, you know, I share the sense of urgency around the need for a vaccine. We know that we are not going to be able to have a robust economic recovery until we wrap our arms around this virus. And the best way for us to be able to do that is with the vaccine. However, just because a vaccine is approved, if the American people don't trust it, then we're not going to have that recovery. And so we have to get it right. And it needs to be safe and it needs to be effective. Are you confident that the people who are going to be doing this, the drug companies and the regulators, uh, are going to feel the obligation to do it right, even if it takes longer than the president wants? Well, you know, we've seen the Food and Drug Administration be politicized. We saw it earlier on with COVID-19 with their emergency use authorization approval of hydroxychloroquine as um, a potential treatment for COVID-19 against um, some of the scientific evidence. And then we saw the FDA have to walk that back after the president embraced it as sort of this miracle drug. Um, we also then saw later in the summer uh, something similar happen with a treatment called convalescent plasma. And so I do think that those fears are um, valid, but the Food and Drug Administration is an independent agency. 
And it was designed to be independent and free from political influence in order to do this work in a way that has the utmost scientific rigor. That's why the Congress and our oversight role is so important. When we uh, ask for you know, the commissioner of the FDA to come and testify, it's not because we want some kind of political theater. We want to hear from the person accountable to tell the American people and update us on their work, what, what they're finding. And, and we need to create pathways for these experts to be able to communicate with the, directly with the American people. And what we've been seeing in this Trump administration is a sidelining, is a muzzling, is a discrediting of some of our leading public health voices. Um, in a way that is extremely damaging to public confidence. And so, you know, I think that the drug companies have been uh, certainly aware of this dynamic. Uh, we saw a few companies even this week publish some of their uh, plans, like their roadmaps. That's what they were calling it in the summaries that I read <laughs> from Politico earlier. Um, I think it was in the news like this morning. And so I think that's an encouraging sign as more drug companies do that. And then also as we can continue to hear directly from the scientists in an unfiltered way about what's going on at the FDA so that the American people can be confident in the process. Um, now, your opponent, Jim Oberweiss, uh, urges people to wear masks. Uh, he faults the president for not doing so. Where, if anywhere, do you feel he's been wrong on coronavirus? The president? No, the, your, your, no Jim Oberweiss, your, your opponent. Oh, you know, I will say this. Um, Mr. Oberweiss is not a healthcare expert, and I encourage our members of our community and the American people to, to consult healthcare experts when, uh, when seeking information about the coronavirus. And so locally, we have experts at our health department. Uh, these are extremely dedicated people that live in our communities that have all types of data and recommendations available, easily accessible online. You can check out the Illinois Department of Public Health. I think we've all been just so impressed by Dr. Ezeke day in and day out. She continues to step up and speak clearly uh, to Illinoisans about what's going on with COVID in our state. And then obviously the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and their recommendations on mask use is the gold standard. And speaking of mask use and, frankly, people seeking information, um, do you see long-term effects in what has happened this year where the wearing of masks, something that would have been simply medical advice and people would hear it and take it, that it has become a political issue? Do you see long-term effects in the politicization of this kind of stuff where people can argue about whether or not they should do what medical experts tell them. Yes, I do. But I sort of think it's sort of two things are happening at the same time. One, we have to acknowledge that this has been a deeply traumatic experience for the American people. We are in a pandemic. We are socially isolated from one another. Many of us are experiencing financial distress. We've lost our jobs, can't afford our rent or our mortgages. And, you know, being isolated, being scared, you know, and having this real need. Then, you know, people are being asked to change their behavior in such a significant way, wearing a mask. I think that some people are just tired. And I understand, right, they want the coronavirus to just go away and things to return to normal. And I think that some people are expressing that fatigue by getting lax in their mask wearing. That is not politicization. That is us needing to continue to reinforce in our social networks 
that mask wearing is socially acceptable. Your mask protects me and my mask protects you. And that's why we need to do it because we care about one another. Right. And, and I don't hear that message as much anymore. We were we were all in in Illinois. That was the message in the spring. And people believed it. And we were united in trying to battle this virus. Um, but as the months have sort of passed, I think people have gotten frustrated and tired. And I would like to see all elected officials and I would like to see all leaders sort of return back to that line of messaging. Now, I do think that the president is wrong. And it is dangerous. And we've seen the number of cases that come out of these rallies where he has thousands of people packed in together, um, breathing heavy, laughing, chanting, um, spreading their, you know, droplets and infecting one another. And we've seen people die. And that is not the way to lead through a time of crisis. Um, and so, you know, long term, I think that, you know, the public's confidence in our healthcare system is certainly uh, something that is fluid and we should not be having our elected officials and certainly not at the highest levels of government like the president of the United States undermining his own healthcare appointees, his healthcare officials um, by not role modeling best behaviors and actively putting the American people at risk by holding these types of large gatherings. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm Craig Delamore, and we're talking with 14th District Congresswoman Lauren Underwood. We are recording this interview via Zoom. Uh, one more thing on COVID-19, and that is the, the long-term effect of, uh, uh, on the economy is another uh, issue. And uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we know it's leaving states short of tax revenue. That's right. Congress is considering... Uh, legislation that could help with that you were um, you were confident uh, then that something was going to happen positive yeah. how confident are you now since it still hasn't happened well you know I just got back from a week in Washington got back this morning obviously there's been um, some what I would call conversations through the press not quite negotiations happening, but communication. And that's a positive step forward. Um, I'll say this, you know, one of the key sticking points had been that the president had uh, expressed um, a, a lack of willingness to support funding for state and local governments who have, uh, as you mentioned, Craig, had some real challenges in the face of COVID-19 due, due to loss of revenue. This week, we've seen, um, you know, some progress from House Republicans expressing a willingness to offer uh, significant funding in the hundreds of billions of dollars to support state and local governments, obviously not as much as we um, put into the HEROES Act, which passed the House this spring. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that we are not, as the, when I say we, the House um, is not as far apart from the Trump administration as we might have been some weeks ago. So I remain optimistic. Um, and I think that obviously the level of need in our communities has only increased since the House passed the HEROES Act in May. Um, and in the face of rising case rates and um, increasing financial distress in our communities, we need to be aggressive in offering the resources to help individuals, to help small businesses, to help communities uh, be able to respond to the virus. I think, I think that um, a compromise is possible. We have two more weeks on the schedule that we're supposed to be in Washington. 
I will be there trying to work with my colleagues on a deal and, um, you know, to certainly do my part in this endeavor. And I hope that the senators in particular share that same sense of urgency because we have not seen movement out of the Senate. What I think that people have missed, to be candid with you, Craig, is that, you know, the House passed a bill in May. The Senate has passed nothing. And so we all remember those early civics lessons that we had in elementary school about how a bill becomes a law. And this has been derailed at a, at a fundamental level um, that has, quite frankly, nothing to do with what's in our legislation that the House passed. It's just that the Senate, it seems to be incapable of doing their part. Um, and that speaks to something, you know, really fundamentally broken in our democracy. And it's sad that at a time of such immense need, the American people are having to suffer as a result. This bill aside, what else needs to happen to get the U.S. economy back to full steam, besides a, a vaccine, which uh, you yes. know, obviously would, would help. That's right. So first, we need to get control of the virus, an aggressive national strategy, testing, tracing, treatment, as we work to develop a vaccine. Second, we have to have these resources, right? Get the HEROES Act or another COVID package signed into law, get these resources into our communities, into the hands of families, into the hands of small business owners, um, so that we can... Um, manage, you know, in the moment, this economic crisis that we're all feeling. And then we have to put people back to work by investing in America. Even before COVID-19, we heard from both parties an agreement that our communities are in desperate need of infrastructure investments and the good paying jobs that come with these types of infrastructure projects. Here in the 14th, we need federal resources to upgrade our transit systems repair and modernize water and sewers. Oh my God, let me tell you the conversations that I have with your mayors and your county uh, executives about these water and sewer systems. It is all across the community, the need for investment. Um, upgrading our school facilities, providing broadband access. Even in our district, we have these huge areas in our counties that are not connected. Um, and putting our country on a path towards a clean energy future by investing in our infrastructure. And so the House passed a bill called the Moving Forward Act over this summer. And I think that that kind of legislation is what we need to also be taking up to put people back to work. Because we know that every, I mean, we, I'll say it like this, we have unfortunately lost some businesses for good. And we need to be able to put people back to work. And this is a great way to get started. Um, I want to double back on health care just a little bit, but not mm -hmm. the not COVID, uh, because that's another big issue. It's the issue that got you elected. Uh, yeah. And that is uh, what our health care system is going to be or become. Um, Republicans, of course, say the Democrats want socialized medicine that's way too expensive. What do you want? Is it Medicare for all? So, you know, in my first term in Congress, I was so proud to be able to get three pieces of legislation signed into law, one of which is the Lower Insulin Cost Now Act, which makes lower cost generic insulin available more quickly for families. We've been laser focused on this effort to lower out-of-pocket health care costs, improve the quality of care and end disparities. Another one of my bills, the Healthcare Affordability Act, which says that no American would pay more than eight and a half percent of their income on premiums on the marketplace, um, was passed 
as part of the uh, Patient Protection and Affordable Care Enhancement Act, which was an ACA enhancement bill earlier this summer. This is important because in our community, it's not uncommon for people to be spending 20 or 25 percent of their income on premiums. And so when we talk about lowering out-of-pocket costs, this is what we uh, need to be doing, lowering prescription drug prices, lowering these premium prices. I recognize that that's not enough, but I also was elected in a time of divided government, Craig. And so, you know, these are concrete, you know, reasonable, effective solutions to help families um, be able to afford the health care that they need. Um, I think that moving forward, you know, I would love to see um, that ACA enhancement bill signed into law. Um, we, I think, are going to have an opportunity to get a public option in place, which, you know, to me should have happened a long time ago. Um, that's, you know, like, duh. And, um, you know, I think that we're probably going to be, we're going to have an opportunity to lower the Medicare eligibility age. And I think that in tandem, sort of those three things, right, clean up on the ACA and making some, you know, needed improvements, um, create a public option for people to buy in, um, and then uh, lowering the Medicare eligibility age kind of takes some of the intense um, pressure that we experience in these healthcare conversations off the, off, lifts it a little bit. And then we can have a conversation about where we want our healthcare system to go, right? Like what kind of transformational change do we want to see? Um, and really have focused, thoughtful conversations about that. Um, I, I, I touched on it earlier, and I just want to double back on this idea of disparities and equity in healthcare. Um, in the United States, for far too long, we have seen uh, black communities, brown communities, like people of color, being disproportionately impacted by disease and death. The spotlight has been shown brightly during the time of COVID-19 on these extreme disparities, but we've been working hard on my time in Congress on an issue of maternal health, right? Black women in our state of Illinois are six times more likely to die as a result of childbirth and that should never, than white women, and that should never happen, right? And so we've been making great progress on that issue, for example, um, and that needs to remain part of the larger healthcare conversation. And part of the conversation that we're having this year has to do with equity mm -hmm. and how, frankly, the White House is handling these issues. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the, even this week uh, uh, downplayed the legacy of slavery, uh, saying that the uh, nation's founding set in motion a chain of events that abolished slavery and secured civil rights, among other things. Um, we've heard warnings that Democrats want low-income people to move out into the suburbs. How... Do we deal with these issues of equity when, again, the issues are being politicized and fear is being stoked? Fear is being stoked by the president. But what I saw happen this summer was people across the 14th district, across the country, embraced the cause of equality and justice, advocating for change, affirming that Black Lives Matter, and, you know, really doing the hard work, right, to examine America's legacy of race and racism and white supremacy as part of the systems, institutions in our country, right, examining their own roles in, in, in this larger culture that has allowed this to foster and, and 
grow for 400 years in our country, right? We've been uh, battling the slavery or the legacy of slavery. And so, you know, I've been really encouraged to see um, this conversation come to the forefront. And even if President Trump isn't there, it's not that the, like the American people are. And we're having the conversations despite him and people are fighting for change. And I certainly have listened to our community and helped lead the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, for example, through passage of the House of, through the House of Representatives in response to this um, call for action and call for change. And, you know, on policing reform, I think it's something that makes all of our communities safer. Um, you know, it's sort of been framed as a solution for just black America or a solution just for urban communities. Um, but these reforms regarding, you know, requiring police departments to collect data on the use of force, banning the use of chokeholds and carotid holds and requiring deadly force to be only used as a last resort. I mean, those kinds of things, I mean, body cameras, hello, those are issues that are prevalent in the 14th congressional district. And so, you know, when we have the opportunity to enhance that bond of trust between police and the communities that they serve um, and do it in a lens of accountability and transparency and equity and justice, I think our society is better for it. That is, believe it or not, going to be the last word because we are out of time. And thank you so much. That is Congresswoman Lauren Underwood of Naperville. Thank you for spending this time. Thank you, Craig. Uh, to our listeners, if you want a copy of this program or to hear it again, please visit our website at WBBMNewsRadio.com. Just follow the podcast link. You can also find our podcasts on Radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.